Hello, my name is Abby, and I'm a part of the youth group and the young adults ministry. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Thank you, Abby. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a spectacular passage of Scripture and one that can illuminate the heart and the mind to the reality of who Jesus Christ actually is. And so I pray that that would happen today, Lord, for, for your people who maybe have underestimated their Lord. And Lord, for those who are not yet uh, your people, who haven't come to the place of surrender of their lives to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would. And so move in this place, move through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are working our way through the letter of Paul to the Colossians. And last week, we, um, we unpacked verses 13 and 14, which say that essentially Christians are people who have experienced a, a transfer from one domain to another domain. And that, that was verse 13. He, de- he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So the domain of darkness, we worked on that a little bit, right? And that's what is often called in the Bible, the world. And so the, the world in the Bible, sometimes anyway, is referring to a system that envelops planet Earth and it is governed by Satan and his fallen angel followers. It's a temporary domain, that is, it's going to perish. But we have passages that bring clarity, um, passages like 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one being Satan, obviously. So the whole world enveloped by a system governed by Satan. 1 John 2, 15, so do not love the world, meaning this system. Now, God so loved the world, but that's not the system that's being talked about in John 3, 16, is it? It's the people. God so loves the people of the world, but not the system. So do not love the world or the system or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. That's all system stuff that's destined to perish. Verse 17, 1 John 2, 17, the world is passing away. The system is going to perish along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. 
So, so there it is. It's, it's implicitly there that the, those who do the will of God, those who have been uh, saved by Christ, have been transferred from one domain, the domain of Satan, the world, and we've been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. And so the heart, how does that happen? You know, how does a person make the transfer? Well, the heart of the salvation experience is really the acceptance of a new authority over our lives. Salvation happens when a sinful, rebellious person like me surrenders their life in its entirety to the one that they were rebelling against. So they now submit to the authority of the one they used to be in rebellion against. And it's, it's then, it's at that point when there's that, that place of placing of faith, that surrendering of the life to the true King Jesus, that that person is, is what Jesus called being born again. So at that point, the sinner becomes a saint and the rebel becomes a son or a daughter. And they're transferred from the domain of darkness and into the domain of Jesus, the eternal kingdom of Jesus. Some years ago, there was a bumper sticker that was, you'd see it everywhere, but it, it said something like, uh, Jesus is my co-pilot, or God is my co-pilot. Listen, that's really weak Christology. I mean, really weak. You, you, can't, you can't add Jesus to your life like you'd add a life coach or something. Okay, Jesus isn't Tony Robbins with long hair and a beard. That's not who Jesus is. Now, Carrie Underwood's Christology is, is a little bit better. Of course, she's saying, Jesus, take the wheel. So that's maybe a little bit better, but it still falls ter terribly short. So, so the title of our message this morning is, He's Greater Than You Think. Jesus is greater than you think He is. And I can just about guarantee that for every single one of us in here, Christian or not, that Jesus is greater. And this passage is going to help us to understand that. However great that you think Jesus is, He's greater still. Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus, take the wheel. Or even Jesus, here's the keys to the car. <laughs> Those all fall a little bit short. If we were going to press that metaphor, we'd probably have to say, Jesus is the car. We're enveloped by him. He is our life. In fact, Paul will say that very straightforwardly. He does in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, who is your life, okay, that is as rock bottom of a statement as you can possibly make. Jesus is, oh, my life is, you know, my life is riding motorcycle. My life is, well, that's pathetic. My life is this. My life is that. Really? Jesus, literally, if you're a Christian here, is your life. Paul's declaration to the Greek philosophers in Acts 17, verse 28, in him, in him, we live 
and we move and we have our being. So the Christian life begins with a willing embrace of Jesus' rule and reign. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord, kurios, Lord. And so kurios means he to whom a person or thing belongs. It means master, it means owner. The Lord, the kurios, has the right to tell the person they own that they are the master of what to do. The Lord has control over the person they are the Lord of. And the person under their lordship is duty-bound to obey their Lord and their master. Now, I know modern ears chafe at this kind of thing. It sounds so demeaning, so belittling to be owned, to have a master. It sounds like slavery, kind of, doesn't it? According to historians and theologians, the, the word we translate transferred in Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. It, that was used of a special uh, event that would happen in the ancient world. When one empire would conquer uh, a people, they would transfer the people. They would, they would migrate the people into their geographical, the, the uh, geographical location of the empire. That's what happened when Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon invaded Israel, right? They took all the, the Jews uh, captive and they brought them, they migrated everybody from Israel over to the Babylonian kingdom. And so now the Jews would have to live under Babylonian rule and, and eat Babylonian food and learn Babylonian language and take Babylonian names and so on and so forth. They were completely transferred from one kingdom to the other, from one domain to another. Their lives were changed in that regard. And that's essentially what Paul is saying when he says we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. It's a comprehensive and complete action. And so now, if you're a believer, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're of the eternal kingdom of Jesus now. So whether or not it's demeaning to have a master and an owner, well, that would depend on who the master is. Everyone's got one, by the way. At least one. That great theologian, Bob Dylan, Nailed it. You're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. <laughs> that was a terrible Dylan. I should have practiced. Darn it. Listen, Jesus is greater than you think. 
He is. You were created by Him. You were created for Him, as we'll, we'll see in just a moment. But before we, we do that, I, I feel like we need to briefly comment on verse 14, which I didn't have time to last week. So, so look at it. Well, beginning at verse 13 again. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, that's in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so let's just, just for two minutes, Jesus redeemed us. That is, he bought us back. That's what redeem means. It's, it's used of someone buying back a slave from their master in order to set them free. So he bought us back. He redeemed us by paying for our sins in order to be able to forgive our sins. So the word forgiveness, awesome word, uh, it's from a Greek word that literally means ascending away. So, so this, this means, forgiveness means that our sin and guilt are sent away. So all that horrible stuff that we're ashamed of in our past had been sent away because Jesus has redeemed us. When I was a kid, we used to, you know, Coke bottles were still in bottles. Those big, thick, you know, iconic Coke bottles. And... The grocery store in my hometown of Moose Lake, the Red Owl, uh, would, would redeem empty Coke bottles. They, they would buy back empty Coke bottles for a nickel. And so I would go around town on occasion and I would look for abandoned empty Coke bottles because if I could get a few of them, if I got 10 of them, that would be 50, Red Owl would pay me 50 cents for those 10 bottles and I could go right across the street to the Ben Franklin store and get me a bunch of Bazooka Joe bubblegum or whatever and I would be living large in Moose Lake, Minnesota at that point. The Red Owl wanted those empty bottles so they were willing to pay to buy them back from the previous owner, from the people who previously had them. So too, Jesus wants the sinful rebels who've rebelled against him, which is amazing in and of itself. He didn't come for the righteous, did he? He came for sinners. And so he was willing to pay the price for redemption. He was willing to buy us back, to pay the price necessary to buy us back. And he does so, by the way. Even though he is our master and our Lord, he buys us back to set us free. We willingly serve our master because he loves us. Now, I can't plow on that this morning. We got to get going. All right. However great you think Jesus is, he's greater still. So Colossians 15 through 20 um, is thought by theologians to be a hymn, an early church hymn that Paul included in his letter uh, to the Colossians, a church that was struggling with who they thought Jesus to be. They, and we'll see this in the letter, but they thought all kinds of stuff about Jesus, including that he was on a par with angels. And so... We're going to see, we'll see how far we get. This is definitely a two-part uh, sermon for sure. But let me just see if we can get maybe three or four of the massive truths about Jesus um, out this morning uh, before we come to the table. So beginning at verse 15, the first thing, first truth about Jesus is Jesus is God made visible to us. 
Jesus is God made visible. That's verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So, so God is invisible. Did you know that? God is absolutely invisible. God is spirit. He's not physical. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, 24, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him, therefore, in spirit and in truth. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. God is invisible. He's spirit. He's not physical. He's not seeable or touchable. Now that God is spirit and invisible, it means not only that we can't see him, but more importantly, that we can't know him. Paul wrote in Romans 1 that creation reveals certain things about God, about this invisible God. Certain things can be known about him, and Paul lays them out, essentially. He says his existence can be known through what's been made. We, we know that he exists. Uh, we know that he's powerful, right? Look at the universe, its enormity and the, the, you know, and wisdom, you know, the genius of creation. And it all came from God, so we know those things about God. <laughs> you know, it's, it's somewhat comical to me to listen to scientific materialists kind of banging their heads over and over against the origins of the universe. Because you can only go so far and then you, you just can't know, right? So they say, at least common opinion now is that, that the universe began with a singularity. A singularity is essentially everything that is was compressed into, well, I think originally they were saying about the size of a soccer ball, and now they're saying a little bit bigger. But everything that is, all the stars, planets, galaxies, space, time, all of it was compressed into, into a singularity, and then boom, the Big Bang happened. And all of that compressed information began expanding and continues to expand today. But what was before the singularity. Where did the singularity come from? Avi Loeb, former chair of Harvard's astronomy department, he theorized just recently, I saw this in an article, that the universe, this is a brilliant guy, okay, that the universe could have been formed in a lab by other life forms. So, so picture aliens in lab coats somewhere out there. Okay, if so, where did the aliens come from? Okay, where did, where did the first thing come from? Something had to precede that. What was before the alien? Something from nothing has yet to be adequately explained. No one has ever explained something from nothing. The only adequate explanation in the universe 
is that the universe was created by an all-powerful, invisible being who exists apart from the creation, apart from space and time. Paul says in Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them, but they suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness. So, so the, the word suppress there, it means to hold back. They hold back the truth. They push it down. It's the word used of a captain steering a ship against the wind. He's determined. He is not going to be pushed off course, right? So, so man stubbornly refuses to believe the obvious. And they look condescendingly down their noses at people of faith like us and say, you're a bunch of fools. We have signs. And yet Paul says in Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Certain things can be known about this invisible God through what he has made. But certain things can't be known. What about his character? What about his purpose for us? What about his disposition towards us? What is he like? Okay, we know he's powerful. We know he's wise. The creation of the universe and all of that. Well, verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of this invisible God. He is God made visible to us. Philip said to Jesus in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you? Haven't I been with you long enough? You still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the invisible God made visible to us. Number two, Jesus is the preeminent human being. The preeminent human being. Verse 15, second part there, last part. He's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, when I was a really young Christian, I got into a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, and I didn't know much about Jehovah's Witnesses or their beliefs. And so I got into this conversation with this person. I said, well, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a, I just gave my life to Jesus. And, and they said, well, did you know that Jesus is a created being? And I said, no. And they said, well, let me show you. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, look, it says he's the firstborn among all creation. You see, he was created, and then Jehovah, God, used Jesus after he created him to create the rest of creation. Now, I didn't know how to answer that. I didn't have enough Bible 
in me at that point to be able to go, wait a minute, let me show you. And so I, I don't know what I said. I think I just looked stupid. And, uh, uh, but I f- and felt like I let the team down. But, but it lit a fire in me to find out what does that mean? What, is, what does Colossians 1.15 mean? Well, the term firstborn, uh, especially in Jewish culture in the Old Testament, it's in reference primarily not to time, but to status. Firstborn is a status in a family. Firstborn means of first importance, preeminence of rank. It's not chronological order. In Jewish culture, the firstborn son in a family was accorded the rights and privileges that the other children didn't have. Thus, the firstborn was uniquely the father's heir and representative. And so Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, for instance, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the firstborn, the heir of all things, you see. And get this, all who come to Jesus become joint heirs with Jesus of all things. This is one of the, the most, um, I don't think we meditate on the reality of this enough. Romans eight sixteen says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you, if you are a ch- a truly a child of God, the Holy Spirit is inside of you telling you that again and again. Yes, you are a son of God, a daughter of God. Yes, you are. You may have doubts right now because you're going through this or that, but no, you belong to the Lord. Yes, you do. And if you are, if you're children, then you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You are a fellow heir with Jesus Christ of all that there is. This is why you don't have to waste your life and spin your wheels trying to get a piece of planet Earth or as much of Earth as you can because you will, like everyone else, leave it all behind. But you will, in the resurrection, receive more than you could ever dream of because you are a joint heir with Christ of all things. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus said, Jesus is our big brother in the church family. Hebrews 2.11 says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jehovah's Witnesses continue what's known as the Arian heresy that was prominent in the third and fourth centuries. It was rejected as heresy back then as it is today. Well, thirdly, thirdly, Jesus, not only is he the invisible God made visible, but he is also, number three, the creator. He is the creator. Now this is pretty powerful and obvious. He's the invisible God made visible. He's the preeminent human. Sorry, skip that one. Third is he's the creator. Verse 16, 
Now watch this. Watch how comprehensive this is. By him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven. So everything that's in heaven. On earth, everything that's on the earth. Visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, so the most powerful beings in the universe, on earth, whatever, all created by Jesus, all things were created through him. So let me just state the obvious. Obviously, Jesus cannot be a created being if he created all things. Right? I mean, that, I know that just, that's like a duh, Right? But, but here, here's what the Jehovah's Witnesses did to make room for their heretical teaching about Jesus. They say that Jesus was created, then he created all other things besides himself, and they added the word other to this verse in their translation called the New World Translation, which is a blasphemous translation. Colossians 1.16, this is... The, their translation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By means of him, all other things were created in the heavens and upon the earth, and so on. All other things have been created through him and for him. If you have to tamper with the text of the Bible to get it to mean what you want it to mean, you're in trouble. According to scripture, Jesus created all created things. John 1.3, famous passage. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, could, it, could that be said any more clearly than that? Jesus created it all. He's greater than you think. Jesus created the planet we currently occupy. He created the galaxy that our planet resides in. He created all the galaxies and all the universe. He created the angels, the fallen ones and the not fallen ones, the cherubim and the seraphim. He created the animals and the fish and the birds. He created the flagellum motor. Somebody's supposed to say, what's a flagellum motor? I saw the question, the little thought bubble appeared over your head. The bacterial flagellar motor is a reversible rotary nanomachine. It's about 45 nanometers in diameter embedded in the bacterial cell envelope. It's powered by the flux of an H plus or an Na plus ions across the psychoplasmatic membrane driven by an electrochemical gradient, the proton motive force or the sodium motive force. Now that's off the top of my head, but... It's a little tiny motor inside of the cell. 45 nan, how big is a nanometer? Give you a clue. A strand of hair is about 60,000 to 100,000 nanometers in diameter. So a flagellar motor is 45 nanometers. To, to maybe illustrate it better, every second, right, right now, every second, 
your fingernails are growing one nanometer. Just hold, close your eyes, you can feel it. The flagellar motor is a highly efficient, highly complex motor that drives cells where they need to go when they need to get there in your body. It's incredible. Jesus created that. Jesus did. He's greater than you think. He's the creator of all things. He created you. Some of you have a hard time with that. You go, what? Yeah, he created you. Not only is he the creator of all things, and we'll end on this one this morning, but he's the goal of all things. The goal of all things. The end of verse 16 says, all things were created through him and for him. And for him. All things. Humans, angels, universes, galaxies, visible, invisible, all of it, created by him, created for him. That includes you. Paul would conclude one of his doxologies uh, at the end of Romans 11. He would say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. From him, through him, to him. That's Jesus. He is greater than you think. He's the creator. He's the goal. Have you been underestimating him? There is not one square inch of the universe about which Jesus does not say, this is mine. This belongs to me. This was created by me and for me. Not one square inch anywhere. It all belongs to him. Are you willing as a rebellious sinner that has been living in rebellion against King Jesus are you willing to repent of your sin and yield your life to him? Don't just invite him to be your co-pilot, your life coach, help you through so you can get the stuff out of life you want. A transfer of all you are out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. It happens by faith. Let's pray. Lord, you are greater. You are greater still than we think. And in, so, in some regard, really, the Christian life is just seeing your greatness grow in our understanding, grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, Second Peter says.
like Lucy in the Narnia Chronicles. Aslan, you've grown, you're so big. Aslan saying to Lucy, I haven't grown. You've grown. The older and more mature you get, the greater I become to you. So Lord Jesus, reveal more and more and more of your greatness to us and of what that means in our lives. Your greatness and your lordship over our lives is not something we ponder on a Sunday morning merely but it's something that manifests itself day to day. It manifests itself in the morning when we wake up. And we wake up with an awareness of your presence. And an awareness of your desire to, to lead us throughout the day and to use us as vessels unto honor. in awareness that the fields are white unto harvest and you would have us to lift our eyes and to see that and to know that the laborers are few so that we might become laborers that day with you, for you. Your Lordship manifests in the relationships that we have in our marriages or in our parenting or in our friendships or even in the conflicts that we may find ourselves in. That we don't have the right to just go off like a loose cannon and flesh out and We are duty-bound to you, Lord, to honor you in every situation, to bring glory to you. So, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, I pray that um, your greatness would be in our hearts and in our minds as we're confronted with the greatness of your sacrifice for us. The invisible God made visible to us. Jesus, that's you. And Lord, you went to the to the utter depths of darkness for us on the planet. You were rejected as a criminal. The invisible God visible, rejected as a criminal, crucified between two thieves, 
spat upon, mocked, beaten beyond recognition, hated. so that we could be redeemed from our lost and fallen condition. For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Christians, you can get up and make your way to one of the communion tables around you. If you're not a believer here this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus Christ right now. It's not enough to sit and hear the Bible preached in a church service. It's not enough to perhaps admire Jesus from afar. Who Jesus is demands a response. And if you are ready to respond, you're ready to turn from your sin. Repent means to turn and go the other way. If you're ready to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ to save you, I want you to pray this prayer. If that's you, pray with me right now and say, Lord Jesus, I submit to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Now come into my life. Take over my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. From this day forward, I belong to you. So as the last of us gather our communion elements, just take a moment as one who has confessed Jesus as Lord to just have a moment with him, to worship him, maybe to sit and deal with the things he's bringing to mind, and then we'll, we'll do as Jesus um, guided his disciples as he's guiding us through his word that that on the night that he met with them in the upper room that he took the bread and and he, he broke it and he, he distributed it and, and he and he blessed it so we'll do the same we'll bless the bread and then we'll partake and father we thank you that that your heart is, is for the world is for the people of the world and that you wouldn't wish that any would perish but they would have eternal life through your son jesus and so we thank you that, that through him we have that promise of eternal life through his body that was nailed to that cross. And so this, this, this represents that. And so uh, we, we just bless this bread and we thank you for the blessing of, of our salvation as we partake in Jesus' name.